Robert Baldock is the Managing Director of the Yale University Press in London, formerly with Wiedenfeld and Nicholson, and prior to that, the Harvester Press, a left-wing press in Brighton. Right. Welcome to the Bibliophile. It's a pleasure. We are here in a beautiful, what was at that time a middle-class dwelling, but it's got a, quite a magnificent ceiling. Like a Wedgwood almost, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's painted in Wedgwood blue. This is a, a late 18th century building in London's finest square, so they say. And each of these grand houses has uh, a big room like this, which would be the principal room. All the uh, principal rooms in the square uh, were decorated by the, the first residents. And so they're all different. Okay. In an evening, if you wander around the square, and these rooms are illuminated, you can see that they're quite different. All, different, all done in this, the, uh, this sort of plasterwork, elegant plasterwork, but different colours and different styles. This room is a bit of Robert Adam fireplace, elegant ceiling, and uh, we try and uh, keep it more or less in the style it's uh, accustomed to being. And this is where we store the books that we produce in this office. And there they all are. They are the, uh, running out of space. Well, perhaps what we could do is to start with a very short history of Yale Press. Right. I'm assuming it's fairly obvious as to where it started and how. Yes, it's an American university press, clearly. We Yaleys think of it as, as quite ancient because we had our centenary in 2008. So it's 102 years old. But if you compare it with Oxford or Cambridge, it has about 700 years to go. It was founded, curiously enough, by a couple of brothers called Palmley Day uh, in New York. They themselves thought that, uh, that Yale University and they were Yale alumni ought to have a, uh, a vehicle for publishing distinguished scholarly books and they set it up themselves and it was only later that it was absorbed into the university itself uh, okay. and migrated to New Haven and gradually over the 20s and 30s became a fully-fledged university press and one of the earliest, of course, in the United States along with Chicago and, uh, and Harvard. Compared to the big English ones, Oxford and Cambridge, we still remain quite small. Chicago, I think, is the largest U.S. university press because it has both books and journals. Probably Yale is the second largest. We do about 420 books a year, and we publish globally. Yale is the only American university press that has an external office, a satellite office, London, where we service half the world. Britain, Europe, Australia, the Middle East, the Near East. And so New Haven and London divide the world like imperial powers. <laughs> <laughs> but the key thing about Yale now is that the London office is a fully fledged publishing office with all the publishing functions. It commissions, it acquires, it edits, it produces, it sells, it has a rights department, it has promotions and publicity. So it is a fully uh, fully operating publishing house of its own and a lot of people would say that Yale London has its own character mm. which is part of the wider Yale personality but, but it has its own distinctiveness. And what makes it distinctive? Well I think partly it's the, the list. Yale London began in 1961 simply as, as a, a, a trading office selling books to booksellers here. In the early 1970s it recruited its first editor from uh, Oxford University Press, and his name was and is John Nicholl, and he was here for 30 years, and he began what is very special for us, which is the art and architecture list. He was passionate about art publishing, indeed he still is, 
and he began specialism in art history publishing, and particularly the, the emphasis on production, production values. He was a, a brilliant designer of books and imaginative in the sense that he, he could make wonderful looking books without paying the earth, which of course is always the problem. Prior to that, there really wasn't the attention paid to art and architecture? Yes, for that, the first 60 years of, of Yale in New Haven was as uh, a university press publishing humanities and social sciences and so on. John Nichol brought the art specialism, which now represents about 40% of our total international business, and we are probably the leading scholarly art publisher in English. We began publishing here in 1973, and I came in 1985 as a history editor, looking after the non-art portion of the press. And then when John himself left to take over his wife's company, Francis Lincoln Publishing, I moved into his position and looking after the office. What do you think he was most proud of? And secondly, what are you most proud of having produced? John is, well, I'm sure he would say he's proud of a variety of books, and he's proud of the style of publishing. But his great success was uh, Mark Girouard's Life in the English Country House, which uh, sold tens of thousands of copies and is still selling, and was a, a wonderful combination of illustrated book publishing and very serious cutting-edge text. And I think probably that's, that's the style of our books. We represent the, the strongest detailed art scholarship, but wrap it into books that look good, that present the illustrations you need to understand the text, and are a pleasure to own. And I think probably the other point is that we do it at a price that people can afford. It sounds ideal. It is, and uh, other people wonder how we do it, and we wonder sometimes. How do you do it then? By very careful production and good organisation. But we also do it by working in conjunction with museums and galleries. So they would have the expertise, they would have the material that you could use for illustrations? The big cost in illustrated publishing is the images. Copyrighted images cost a fortune. So it's very difficult, if you're doing a book with 400 colour images, you may have uh, a bill for about £40,000 for those. So you simply can't do it on a commercial basis. You need help. You do it in partnership? Do it in partnership with yeah. museums and galleries, and sometimes with, uh, with sponsors of one sort or another who have an interest in that particular artist or that, that theme. That's, I suppose, our skill in bringing those elements together is what made, what's made it work. And also our skill in, in production, because Clearly, if you're going to do a high-grade art book, the, the quality of production is crucial, and you have to weigh, the, weigh that against the cost. We print in China, we print in Italy, we print in Eastern Europe. Is there any one particular printer that you find to be outstanding? It's probably fair to say that we do our most high-grade work with an Italian printer called Conti. Most of our really critical books where, where art historians are extremely... So concerned about the veracity yes, of the, the reproduction? About the, the, the reproduction, yeah. the colour, the yeah. authenticity. Accuracy. Uh, accuracy, yeah. which is necessary for, for scholarship, scholars to interpret it. Yes. When that's necessary, we send our editors on press. Our art editors are always going over to Italy, sitting there on the machine as the pages come out and yeah. saying, bring up magenta. <laughs> it's, it's very much a hands, hands-on thing. You asked w what John Nicol would have been most proud of, and I think what he would have thought of as most effective is the way we actually do our production. 
in most larger publishing houses you would have editors working on a text and they'd hand it over to a production design department who would specialise in getting it through the production. We consolidate those functions. So an editor who is working on a, an art history book would either edit it themselves or look after the editing, then they would design it themselves, um, and then they would buy the production. And they would do that with the author pretty much sitting at their side. We encourage authors to participate. I mean, these books are very complicated to produce, and the authors care a lot about them. Well, it's about their reputation, isn't it? It is, but it's also fun. The process is fun, and we like yes. authors to have fun as well. We encourage authors to come in, and authors are always streaming through this building, sitting with editors, uh, design is generally on screen these days, but uh, there are often mountains of paper all over the floor. I mean, I've seen this, this particular room absolutely covered in rivers of paper yeah. with authors and editors on hands and knees um, moving <laughs> images from place to place. It's a very sort of hands-on process. We like the author to be content with the book when it's published, and we also like their text and their images to be in the right place. Make it easy for the reader to grasp yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it's a very hands-on process and the author is fundamental to it and yeah. we like that. Talking about that approach, I thought immediately of the Steinauer Press in Lunenburg, Vermont. Right. That's exactly what Rocky Steinauer claimed was the key to his success. I wouldn't be surprised if Yale used Steinauer over right. the years. Right. You mentioned a specific book that was particularly popular, but obviously it was popular because it was what? So beautiful, so... I, I think it's a combination of an excellent text and high-grade design. I mean, we do like our books to look beautiful, but beauty isn't the only thing. Being a university press, the text is absolutely critical, and we, by and large, can't publish books that are simply illustrated. We can't publish a book that has only photographs because our uh, publishing board in New Haven, which consists of uh, a range of distinguished Yale faculty, their responsibility is to make sure that all our books contribute to scholarship in a clear way. Right. And they would feel, I think, that a book that was simply there for its attractiveness, yeah. because it had wonderful paintings or wonderful photographs, but wasn't actually saying anything about those other than look at me, they wouldn't regard that as part of our remit. Which distinguishes you from sort of a commercial publisher who simply wants to get as many of their books sold as they possibly can. Right, yeah. yeah. Commercial success is not the principal objective, really, any university press. I yeah. mean, it's obviously crucial that we don't lose money. We don't, don't produce books simply because they're going to sell. In fact, a dead cert bestseller, if you can ever work out what that's going to be, if we were offered one and it didn't have scholarly bona fides, we would have to avoid it. Sales is not the only thing, although it's clearly very helpful. What was the title of that book again? Uh, Mark Gerard's Life in the English Country House. You asked what I was most proud of, and I think I'm clearly proud of lots of my books and authors over the last 20 years. But the book that is most conspicuous at the moment is E.H. Gombrich's Little History of the World. This is the book that was published by Gombrich, who is the author of The Story of Art. Text in many universities. Yes, I mean, it sold many millions of copies and, and still sells. When he was a young man, aged 26, 27, in the 1930s, in Germany, when Hitler was clearly making himself felt, Gombrich was asked to write a general survey of world history, and he produced it in three months, staggering achievement of writing. He would read up in the library in the morning and come home and write it. 
filter it through his, yes, his brain. through right? his very special brain. Yeah. And it was published in Germany in the 1930s. But Gombrich himself then came to, to London and became uh, director of the Warburg Institute and had a great career. And he never thought that the English would be interested in this history of the world because it wasn't kings and queens and Shakespeare. and It wasn't history seen from London. It was history seen from Middle Europe. And he mm. thought that the English narrow as we are, wouldn't uh, appreciate that. We decided that we should try it, and so we had it translated five years ago and published it in English, and it's been uh, an absolutely tremendous success. At this point, we've sold just under 400,000 copies, <laughs> and we're selling a 1,000 a week. And, and the reason it's a success is, although it's a young man's book, um, it is a book of huge wisdom and humanity and sort of effortless effortless judgment of history and the people that have played a part in it. Plus you've got the name recognition, obviously. Yeah, yeah that, that of course helps. And w this is an interesting book in terms of production because I, in front of me I have the paperback edition. Um, but we thought very carefully when we produced the hardback. We knew that we didn't want to illustrate it copiously because it isn't that sort of book and yeah. the reader has to use their own imagination. But we did commission what are effectively line drawings they look um, like woodcuts. They look like woodcuts, yes. In fact, they're line drawings. Okay. Um, and they're, they're by a, a London artist called Clifford Harper, who did a wonderful job for us. And we have one at the start of every chapter, and there are quite a lot of chapters. And they're evocative, quite simple. They look like Robert Gibbings. Yes, they look, in a way, quite old-fashioned. Yes. They? Well, because it's, it's history, isn't it's, it? It's history. And yeah. also, the, he wrote the book essentially for children. We pitch it as a book for children of all ages. Right, right. Um, but but he, mm. you know, without being patronising, he explains world history to a younger readership. So we didn't want to make it look like a prime facing like a children's book, but we wanted to you know, have some element that made it look really like a bit of a classic book. It's um, lovely, yeah. It's got these, uh, these French gates or That's right, the, the, the paper bag with flaps, yeah. um, which makes it special. And it got wonderful attention, wonderful reviews. It's sort of our Bible, in a sense. I mean, you know, Oxford has the dictionary, Cambridge has the Bible, and we have Gombridge. And you've got a great blurb here from Philip Pullman. It doesn't, doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. That worked yeah. really well. So this is re recent, and it's gone into a number of reprints, obviously. Yes, it's now four or five years old, and right. we reprint it regularly. What about, then, from the perspective of a, of a collector, what do you think, within your list going back over the years would be particularly interesting. Dion has always published a number of series of books and indeed looking into our deep backlist we have some, some classic editions. We have the papers of Benjamin Franklin, the works of Jonathan Edwards, the collected works of Samuel Johnson. In the 50s I know there was a, a scholar that came across diaries of Boswell. That's right and those works have gone on for many many years and substantially are complete now. I mean, the Benjamin Franklin uh, collected papers are about 60 volumes, oh, um, with about three volumes of index. So they're you know, very major things that you will find in libraries. That kind of publishing is not really feasible anymore, and that kind of publishing will in the future be done uh, digitally. But we still have a number of series that we are, we are proud of, and which uh, I think are books to be collected. One of the best-known series is the Yale series of Younger Poets. We have an annual competition for younger poets, which has been uh, running for years. We get many, many applications, 
and each year we publish the best in a slim volume, and it's mm. a very prestigious award, and some of America's finest poets started off that way. We publish a lot in 18th century studies. This is a spin-off of the Lewis Walpole Library in Farmington, Connecticut. The Lewis family collected Horace Walpole's material from Strawberry Hill in London. Early printing press and that, publisher. That's right. Uh, Widmar Lewis, a wealthy man and a bibliophile, was fascinated by Horace Walpole and spent his life gathering as much as he could and reassembling it in Farmington. The Lewis Walpole Library is, is open, wonderful place to visit. He collected paintings from Strawberry Hill, libraries, artifacts, furniture. It's mm. a bit like a recreation of Strawberry Hill in rural Connecticut. That endowed a series of 18th century studies that we've been publishing ever since, books on England in the 18th century. And there's an edition of Walpole's own correspondence in many volumes. But it's enabled us to have a very strong 18th century list. More recent series that stand out, uh, Yale has had, after 1989, had a great interest in the fall of communism and what we could find out about the communist period. A very distinguished editor in American office, Jonathan Brent, who was a Russian specialist, went to Moscow, connected with librarians and architects, and spent the, the next 10-15 years assembling uh, a series which we call the Annals of Communism, a collection of documents on various, various topics to do with communism, trying to find out how communism operated from the very archives that were created by it. That's a, a major political series that we've been uh, doing over the last 15 years. And those have good production qualities and values? Yeah, yes, and some of them are parallel text with the Russian text on one side and the English on the other. Oh, wow, okay. uh, it's interpreting sources, really, making unpublished archives available and then interpreting. And then we would have a, a major historian uh, writing and linking passages and interpreting them. So the, the collector then could hunt these down and come up with a complete set. Yes. I assume that the value of that collection has appreciated over time? Yes, in the sense of value to rarity, I would think that it's too young to be at that stage because books become valuable when you can't get them. <laughs> we still have them in print. But it was a, a total ambition to sort of get a, a thorough, authentic, document-based account of how communism operated. And, and how it fell, too? Yes, th there are books on the, um, the end of it, but of course that, that story is still emerging. Yes. It is one of the interesting sort of mysteries that we still have to crack. We have a lot of books about the period of Stalin, about how he operated and some of the uh, revelations about the terror. It's really ins inside the Soviet system. I wonder if Martin Amos referred to the uh, yeah, series I writing his, what I is it, Koba, yeah, The Dread? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I wouldn't doubt that he is familiar with it. We talked prior to starting about how it, it's a national pastime to slag Martin Amos. Yes, I mean, you're referring to our recent book by Gabriel Zostovici, uh, which is called Whatever Happened to Modernism? in which Gabriel, who is a retired professor from Sussex and from Oxford, compared current English novelists unfavourably with some of the great writers of the early part of the 20th century, particularly European writers. And he wrote a couple of pages where he spoke about Martin Amos and others and said that they were not writers who necessarily would live in perpetuity as classics of their genre. There was a huge response to that and those two pages were picked out in the newspapers and, and on various blogs with, with interestingly enough a, a huge amount of support 
<laughs> yeah. But also he was criticised as being uh, elitist and esoteric, and he published a, an article in the New Statesman uh, a couple of weeks back saying that he stands by what he said in those two pages, but it actually wasn't the core of his book, which, no. is, which is you know what has happened to modernism. It but hasn't really progressed much, and no, there's no experimentation. Yeah. Right. And, and that we are obsessed by fairly, fairly trivial uh, literature these days. Maybe. Puffed up by uh, the yeah. publicity people. And the celebrity, the authors. And, and, uh, absolutely. And he regrets yeah. he that. And the, the book is an attempt to make people realise what is great in literature mm. and, and how, to, how to find it. We're very keen to get publicity for our books, so wherever it comes from, we are, we are pleased. We just have to insert correctives if people get the wrong task. We were talking about the series on communism. What else is there that perhaps has had the most attention paid to the production values? I mean, you could say collect was John Nichol, right? Yes. Books that he had a role in designing, or a, a significant role in designing. Right. And that would be... How many books were we talking about? Quite a few, I imagine. Yes, many hundred. I suppose probably in response to that, I would mention two series that we took over from Penguin, historic series, and both connected with Nicholas Pevsner, the great architectural historian, who was an editorial advisor for Penguin for many years. He started two seminal series in art history when he was at Penguin, and one of them is the Pelican History of Art, which is a multi-volume series of the art of the great civilizations across the ages, really distinguished series, which we acquired in the late 90s, and we have maintained in print and indeed developed. It's now about 70 or 80 books in extent. We've embellished the look of these books. We've added color, we've added more illustrations, while preserving the scholarly text. So it's a, it's a classic series. And because it was known as the Pelican History of Art, we decided we couldn't drop the Pelican, so we called it the Yale Pelican. Uh, Sorry, were these paperbacks? Well, they were both cloth and paperback, and we have continued that, all with the distinctive black jacket, black spine. But I was going to mention the other series, which is also associated with Pevsner, indeed more so, and that's the Buildings of England series, uh, which people refer to as the Pevsner Gardens. The name Pevsner is a shorthand to the architectural history of the United Kingdom. And he began in 1950 with his ambition to document and critique and illustrate uh, every notable public and private building uh, county by county through England. And he, the lifeful man that he was, wrote several dozen of these himself with unbelievable energy that he would get in his little Morris Minor uh, with an assistant and drive off somewhere and spend all day looking at buildings and knocking on doors and asking the owners of major houses if he could have a look and then coming back to his bed and breakfast in the evening and writing it up and doing the same in the morning. Uh, he had unbelievable energy and he wrote a tremendous amount and his, his books are characterised by his own personality, his own views, a very skilled and trained architectural historian but also somebody who had his own uh, predilections mm -hmm. and that comes out in, in, in a very wry and, and uh, humorous text. He, it's a similar gene to the, the, the book collector's gene. He's got this set of counties that he has to work through mm -hmm. and complete, and that keeps him going. Yes, and a sort of obsessive 
desire to to recognize and annotate every distinguished piece of architecture. And what to provide his own review, his own, as you say, critique, yes. say th these are probably the best examples of this particular kind of architecture, yes, exactly. these are perhaps not quite so good but still worth... Yes, it's not a sort of system of evaluation by points, it really, he describes buildings, yeah. churches, stations, public buildings of all sorts, um, and great houses and cathedrals. He describes them in a very thorough way, but he will just have a little inflection, a little comment. Uh, mm. Often, uh, I wish I could remember specifics, often terribly funny, but yeah. absolutely acute. Uh, and that was, that was the brilliance of his style, and it's something which is quite hard to replicate, because when he died there were still a number of counties he hadn't got around to. So with the, with the aid of the Pedrona Trust, we have been able to fund authors to continue his endeavour, fill in the gaps, and also actually revise the books that, uh, that, that he wrote, and to try and do that while replicating his wonderful, humorous, uh, astute style is, is a challenge. But r in front of us here, I have the, the, the book we're publishing now, which is a new edition of, of the Pevsner on Cumbria, Cumberland, Westmoreland, and Furness, the, the, the Lake District. Yeah. Um, it's written by Matthew Hyde and Nicholas Pevsner, so the basis of the book is, is the original Pevsner, mm -hmm. um, but Matthew Hyde has gone round the buildings and looked at them again, uh, updates the account, and also takes account of all the buildings that have been built since the first edition. So we try and keep them up to date. Inevitably, they grow. It's very difficult for these books to be anything less than 800 pages these days. Whereas in Pevsner's time, they were perhaps three, 400, and they would fit, as they were aimed at, in the glove compartment of everybody's uh, car as they traveled around England looking at the great buildings. Now you have to have a certain commitment to them and have them in the seat next to you in the car. <laughs> yeah, or, or in your iPhone, or you know, well at that, some point that is, that's... That uh, is the future. Yes. A, a digitized Pevsner would be a wonderful thing, and we're, we're thinking about that and looking at ways both to create it and to finance it. But it's, it's tailor-made for an app. Yes, that's the thing everyone talks about. You've got to get an app, but you've, you've also got to be concerned about cannibalizing your existing product. The hope is that the digitized books and apps will find a new market and not destroy the one we have. Yeah, yeah. That's the way I view it. I think that you know, the web is a way to communicate our books to readers who couldn't get access to them in the past and, and who need to. And sitting in London, uh, where you know, the British Library is a few yards away, the British Museum is a few yards away, the University of London Library is two blocks away, getting books here is easy. Mm. But for most people in the world, it isn't. They're not living next to major uh, libraries or indeed major bookstores. And the web is wonderful in that respect. It can provide the greatest resources of libraries to people in the most remote places. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the, the, the brilliance in the future of it. Democratization. Yeah, and it's of, inexpensive of, of to, get, to get the information, yeah. isn't it? Or it yeah. should be. Yeah. And of course, it, it will also preserve books, their utility. Most scholarly books are published in small runs, and it come, there comes a point where they go out of, out of print, and you can't afford to keep them in print other than these days as, as print-on-demand. Um, but the digi digitized version lives forever. Final question. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that, that we should bring to the attention of collectors? We've talked about designers. We've talked about series. You mentioned the issue of jackets, of covers, and, and designers. And it's quite difficult for me to 
mention specific names. I mean, if one thinks about Penguin and the history of Penguin, mm. there are certain key designers. Key yeah. designers. Yeah. With us, it's not quite the same. I suppose because our, our program is 25, 30 years old rather than 80 years old, and partly that books are now collective operations and individual editors do the design. We do use external designers um, and some very distinguished ones from time to time, mm. but by and large we, we tend to do it all in-house yeah. and wrap in the design of the editing and, and the rest of the concept. Okay. So, it's, so it's a creation of an editor and an author together. Um, what about limited editions? Do you, have you done any of those? Well, in a way, all our books are limited Yeah, editions. it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes think we should number them all. The, the, the battle, is, as you know with publishing, is working out how many you should print in the first place so that you don't have too many in the end and you don't have too few at the beginning. But uh, many of our books, our more scholarly books, have editions of under a thousand copies. And the worst, of course, is that sometimes these days when you can uh, produce print-on-demand editions, you reach into your deep backlist uh, and you find that you don't actually possess a copy of your own book. So you have to go onto Abe Books, onto Amazon, to buy back your book. Yes. And I'm faced with a situation at the moment with a book that I commissioned about 20 years ago uh, from a French psychoanalyst. I can't find a book <laughs> in our archives at all. And the only ones uh, on the web are several hundred pounds. So I'm wondering if I can afford to buy my own book. <laughs> what about Google? Would they have scanned it, do you think? Well, we wait to find out, of yes, course. Um, yes. I imagine that they will, because they've scanned the big libraries. But Google is not yet willing to share its scans with anyone else. I hope they will be. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the intriguing questions of publishing, isn't it? What will Google do with what they've scanned? And how will we all benefit from that? Thank you so much for giving us a history and a look into some of the more interesting and collectible titles that Yale University Press has published over the years. Thank you. This has been fun. I've been speaking with Robert Baldock, who is the managing director of the London office of the Yale University Press here in Bedford Square, Bloomsbury. That's right. Thanks again.